On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to give you the one secret to bump up your grades, your kids' grades, your grandkids' grades in school. There is a study that's been done, and it shows there is one thing you can do, and maybe schools and school boards should be doing, one thing to increase grades. We'll tell you what that is. Also, a local guy, well, not a local guy, a guy who's played hockey locally before, though, has written a book, former NHL player, called Make Hockey Great Again, about how to give hockey back to the kids, how to make it fun, how to make it good again for younger people. We'll chat with him. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I am going to present you through a conduit, my next guest in just a moment, the secret clearly, apparently, to improving your marks, getting better grades in school, enhancing your chances of getting to a good university, which will then lead to a good job, a big house, all the money you want, blah, 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 blah. We are going to make your life better through the little tip that I'm going to give you or where you're going to hear right now. I mean, it's really that simple. Your life is about to be changed. And how? Well, through a new study that has been done. It was done out in Seattle and it was about high school students, which is how we tie into this. The results were published this week in the Science Advances Journal. What does this study say? What is the secret, apparently, to getting better marks, better behavior, perhaps, better attendance at school, making everything better for high school students? You ready? If we had a drum roll handy, I would do it. Thank you very much. Sleep. Sleep is the answer. Sleep more in Seattle is the name of the study. It turns out that... Maybe predictably, maybe not, the kids in high school who got more sleep did better. The author of that study, his name is Gideon Dunster. He is a graduate student at the University of Washington's Department of Biology. He joins me now. Gideon, thanks for doing this today. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on. I have to think that every scientist who launches into some sort of study, some sort of research project, goes in with some idea of what the answer what the result is going to be, hopefully with an open mind, but with some sort of expectation of what they're going to discover. Would it be fair to say this is probably what you thought was going to be the end result? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, as you say, scientists, we never do anything without having a good reason or what we think is a good reason. Uh, And so we used lots of other literature published by plenty of people throughout um, the years in our field. And we assumed or we predicted that when students sleep more, they're going to do better in school, they're going to get to school on time. And we thought perhaps one of the best ways to try and accomplish this was to delay the school start times. So you're absolutely right. You go into it with an open mind, but we had an educated guess that we might see this. Now, what was your educated guess about how significant sleep would what kind of role sleep would play? Did you think it was going to be really marginal or did you think it was going to make a massive difference? Well, so that's a really good question. You know, when we first proposed this change, or I should say when my advisor first proposed this change to the school board, uh, one of the critiques was people assumed if you let teens wake up an hour later, they'll probably go to bed an hour later as well. Um, but we didn't think so because the biology is really what's dictating when students are going to bed. When they go through puberty, teens actually have a delay in their circadian clock, and so they, are, they become more naturally night owls. And so we figured that you know, if biology is telling them when they're going to bed, but society is telling them when they're waking up, if we just push that society, that school time, back a little bit, um, it's likely that we would see an increase in sleep. And that's exactly what we saw, was the students went to bed at the same time Um, between years, but after the delay, they got up a lot later, and so they slept more. 
you use the phrase there, and, and we've all heard the phrase before, the circadian times. And I, I think some people, and I'll be honest, sometimes I hear that phrase too, and I wonder if that is an actual thing or if that is sort of a mumbo-jumbo, pie-in-the-sky theoretical thing that we like to tie into somehow astrology and everything else. So I, is it a legitimate <laughs> thing? Yeah, absolutely. There is a uh, bundle of cells in your brain, uh, and it's in a place called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Uh, and that is what it gives you that circadian rhythm. And we find circadian rhythms in all kinds of organisms, from fruit flies and mice all the way up to human beings. And they're really, really important for helping us prepare our bodies for the day. Uh, and so they control things like sleep, but body temperature, um, improved digestion. There's even some evidence right now that um, if you think about circadian rhythms when you're doing medical treatments, that you can improve outcomes in hospitals. So someone who says, oh, I'm a night owl, I can't sleep at 6 o'clock, they may not just be a social butterfly. They may act, that, that is probably what their body clock really is telling them. Oh, absolutely. We, uh, we see a lot of variety in human beings, and we actually have a scientific term for whether you're a night owl or a morning lark, and we call it your chronotype. Um, the time that your body prefers to be active versus sleeping. So it's not just laziness, because sometimes when you say, oh, I sleep in, you know, I, I'm up at six, and if you're not up by six, if you sleep till nine, you're just lazy. That That's not necessarily the case. It could be, but it's not necessarily uh, the case. <laughs> sure, it could be, but, you know, I think teenagers really get a bad rap because a lot of people assume that teenagers want to sleep in because they're lazy, but really their biology is driving them to go to bed late and wake up late. Uh, and so, you know, it's absolutely true that, you know, we have a society that's kind of selected for people that like to be up in the morning. And as a result, we've kind of put a lot of stress on a whole population of people that that's just not natural for them. We're chatting about a new study called Sleep More in Seattle. It was published this week. And essentially what it's showing is that high school students that get more sleep and that potentially have the start time of their school day pushed a little later are doing considerably better in school. Gabriel Dunstan is the author of this study from Seattle, from University of Washington. He joins us again now. Um, is it, does it matter that, or does it matter, Gabriel, when the students get their sleep or just that, that they get more sleep? Does the hours that they sleep make a difference or we just need to find more hours for them to have sleep? That's a, that's a really great question. Um, so it's both. Uh, there's been studies that show that it's not just how much you sleep, but when you sleep. Because if you remember, we have that circadian rhythm that is uh, always ticking in our bodies. And so if you sleep at a time that's not natural for you, and we see this a lot when you look at the evidence for shift workers, for instance, people that are working nighttime and sleeping during the daytime, they may get the same amount of sleep, but when they're sleeping uh, is, un is unhealthy for them in the long run. Uh, and so it's actually both. We want to get students the right amount of sleep at the right time. Because your ab the abstract for your study, the essentially for people who don't read a lot of studies, the short form, the Precy review, uh, the, the first sentence, most teenagers are chronically sleep deprived. I can't believe that every single teenager is burning the midnight oil every single night. So there's got to be some kind of explanation for why this is, which may be what exactly you just said. Yeah, so, you know, what we found in some other work that, that we didn't do, but other work in our field has found that um, probably up to 90% of teenagers uh, are not getting the average nine hours of sleep per night that they need uh, to develop healthily. 
And, you know, if you are a teenager and you don't want to go to bed or you're biologically um, not going to go to bed until, say, 11 or midnight, you know, that would require that you don't wake up until 8 or 9 in the morning. And for many students, they already have to be at school at that time. And it seems, yeah, it seems funny, though, because if if a student, if a teenager is hungry, they don't just deny themselves. Usually they go and grab something out of the fridge and they eat. But if they're overtired, they don't necessarily go to bed earlier to catch up on their sleep. So they just get further and further behind. Right. You know, this is kind of both the biology keeps them awake because that circadian clock can help counteract the tiredness that we feel throughout the day. But also, a lot of the teens we talk to, they have homework and they have some other things that keep them up as well. Uh, And so, kind of taken together with this pressure for school early in the morning and their biology not letting them sleep till night, uh, until later at night, you know, we really do see a lot of evidence for this sleep-deprived epidemic. And, um, you know, this is recognized by the American Association of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association. So, you know, this is just one piece of the puzzle that is starting to come into a full picture, um, you know, in, in the recent years. So your study then takes the idea that, okay, if kids sleep, if they go to sleep later, if the circadian clock pushes them into bed at a later time, but they still need their sleep, what if we were to start the school day later, let's say 10 o'clock in the morning instead of 8.30 or 9, buy them an extra hour of sleep, which may or may not be enough, but it's something, you found that doing that actually had a significant impact on grades and on attendance on behavior. Yeah, so the Seattle Public School District delayed their start times until 8.45. Uh, and when they delayed their start times by about 55 minutes, we saw an increase um, for the students of about 35 minutes a night. And so, you know, we're still not reaching that 8 to 10 hour average in our students, even in Seattle after the change. But like you said, you know, some progress is good. We're at least making progress in the right direction. What was the impact, though, Gabriel, on the grades? Were there tangible differences in in the grade scores? Yeah, so we actually saw that after the delay, uh, students had 4.5% higher grades in their second semester grades. So we had uh, collected all of their grades from their biology class um, across the entire second semester, and we just looked at them. We said, you know, are students doing better or worse? And it turns out they're doing better uh, under these new school start times. So if that's the case, and if we have a tangible mark that we can point to, and by the way, there was a school in Toronto a number of years ago, Eastern Commerce, that did the the same thing, started at 10 o'clock and saw exactly what you're describing. Why are school boards not lining up to do this and say, listen, we'll just start an hour later and finish an hour later, no problem? Yeah, you know, it's a very complicated topic. So school boards have to keep in mind bus schedules. um, They have to keep in mind after-school activities. And so, you know, we think that as a result from what we saw in our study, um, that the student health is, is worth the pain of making some of these changes. Because it is a big change. You know, the Seattle Public School District had to spend money and time and effort to reorganize uh, a lot of their, their bus schedules, their sports schedules, their field times, you know, all of those things. Uh, and so, you know, like with anybody, you know, a big change is hard to want to do, um, but we really think that it's worth it in the long run. It is a, it is a really interesting topic. There's, um, there's stories online people can pick up and read a little more. Uh, this is a, a launching point for them. Uh, but it's a really fascinating topic and one that, boy, it, it makes so much sense 
that it would seem that somebody in some school boards would be hopefully interested in this. Uh, Gideon Dunster, I think I may have at one point called you Gabriel. Maybe I'm into the Christmas spirit or something. I'm not sure. But Gideon <laughs> Dunster, a graduate student at the University of Washington's Department of Biology. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for this. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, go ahead and look this up. It's called Sleep More in Seattle. Not Sleep Less, get it? Of course you do. Uh, sleep more in Seattle. Later school start times are associated with more sleep and better performance in high school students. And even if your school board is not going to start your school later and you got a kid who's in high school or a grandchild or you're in high school, the suggestion is pretty clear. Get some extra sleep. Your marks are going to go up. That's what they're saying. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. My next guest is a former NHL player. He played for the Dallas Stars, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the New York Islanders, played in Europe, was the captain of the Dundas Real McCoys in senior hockey here for a number of years, and has now written a book with that title, Make Hockey Great Again. His name is Mike Kennedy. He joins us now. Mike, how are you tonight? I'm great, Scott. How are you? I'm excellent. Good to catch up with you. It's been a few years. Uh, this book is largely, a lot of it is about training and coaching, and I want to get into that in a minute. But before I do, there has been, because you're a, you're a dad now, you're a coach, you've been a player, you've had coaches, there's been a ton that has been written and discussed and analyzed over the years about how, in a lot of ways, the game of hockey has gotten away from kids, the fun part. How has that happened? Well, I think it's just the uh, pressures of having to win. You know, it gets in the way of, you know, what we're truly out there for, which is the enjoyment of the game and, you know, putting uh, putting us in an environment that makes us, uh, the coaching staff, want to win every hockey game isn't necessarily the best thing for everyone involved. And I, I think we can still win and have fun. And, you know, I think we move away from this pressure so much of the winning environment. Is that changing? I mean, do you think that the, the the pressure on the pressure, the fact that so many people are talking about this and pointing to this, do you think that's changing things back a little bit? I'm not sure if it is, no. Um, uh, I think that, uh, you know, coaches that are coaching the game that are non-parent coaches, you know, they are doing it because they love the game, but also they're doing it for their own pride. And what, what happens is the winning becomes the number one thing to feel like they're doing a good job and you know i point to our team in oakville here my son's age is an 02 and the oakville ranger team always had a uh, goal in mind and that was to see how many kids they could get drafted to the ohl not to see how many championships they won so i uh, i think they might have set a record with 15 kids off of one team being drafted to the ohl and i think that's kind of the uh the the, the goal should be for most coaches to see if you can advance your kids not to win tonight's hockey game I do. Uh, even if you had never told me that we were talking about a hockey book, I would immediately know you were a hockey parent because you describe your kid as an O two. <laughs> hockey parents always talk about their kids in terms of what year they were yeah. born. You can always tell who the hockey parent is. But what, one of the challenges, one of the things that often I think is the difficulty, hockey's become a very expensive game, Mike. You know this as well as anyone. And it seems like a lot of times now, if mom or dad is going to be putting thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars into equipment and signing up for teams and traveling and hotels and skating lessons and shooting clinics and all the rest, your kid suddenly becomes an investment almost more than this is an opportunity for them to do something fun. Yeah, but I don't look at that, right? I look at the journey of hockey being, there's so many awesome life lessons along the way that materialize when you're older, knowing how to have great friendships and work towards a common goal and 
uh, you know, it's more to the game than just uh, what we think we're investing in is a return on it. No, I'm investing in my, my kid because the sport is so great. You know, surround yourself with some parents that you uh, love going to the rink to hang out with and watch hockey. I mean, it's more than just uh, putting money in your kid to see how good he can be. You have played in different places around the world. You've played in Germany for a while. You've played in Sweden. You've played in other places. Do they have the same problems, do you know, the same challenges with a lot of the things that we talk about here? Well, I think in North America, because I'm not going to put Europe, I think it's a little bit different in North America where we really want to see the performance happen immediately. I think in Europe, they take a bit of a longer-term approach. They know that this is... uh, a journey, and they respect that with you know the high-level coaches that they have at the younger age groups. We have a lot of volunteers here in Canada and the United States, but uh, they have uh, some higher-level, high-end coaches that kind of see a bigger picture, and they're always kind of pushing for the long term. And uh, like I mentioned, you know, we're, we're always kind of looking at the scoreboard tonight. And that's just one of the small differences from North America and Europe. We do, and I do want to get again into the book and into the stuff about the coaching that you're talking about, about how to change these things, but one of the things that seems recent, at least it seems in my mind more recent, especially with kids hockey, now it's mostly in AAA, not in every level, but we now have with some kids hockey paid coaches. Is that a good idea? I think so. I think, uh, you know, it's about 150 to 200 hours a year to be a, be a coach, and that's just on ice. So now we've got to drive to the rink and drive home. So we're looking at four or 500 hours, and it's becoming a lot to ask of a volunteer to do. And so to entice people that know a lot about the game to want to come out and coach and, you know, get a modest uh, payment to be there every day, I, I think it's uh, a lot of parents are actually grateful for, you know, the, the former professionals or whoever might be around that are coaching their kids and to pay them fifteen to you know thirty thousand dollars for a season, it's becoming quite acceptable, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, there's two sides to this, as you say. One of them is that, and, and the fact that if you can have someone who's independent, who's not a parent, that takes some of the conflict potentially out of the mix. But the flip side is, if you're going to pay them, then it goes to your point that they've got to win or they've got to produce. I suppose would be a better word, and and that could be a risk as well. So it's, I I, I'm, I don't know. I I suppose there's a good a solid argument on both sides of that one. Yeah, for sure there is, and like I said, producing or winning, I think it's we can just make sure we look at the longer term picture. Like if we start off, if you want to take a short term look at a season. You know, well, we want to win at the end, right? That should be the goal. Let's, let's try to do all our development and all the things that we think can help our team, but let's quit winning off until the end of the season. And for me, in particular, even I, I would look at the season isn't what we want to win. We want to win in how good we can become in one year, how much better, my, closer to my potential I can get to. And was was that your experience? Was that your experience growing up? No, definitely not. But I, my experience was on the outdoor rinks and, you know, playing for high school team and my Mississauga reps team, and I was on the ice, like, nonstop. But, we, you know, we've gravitated a little bit away from that, and that's fine. But we got to bring back how much enjoyable it is to be at the rink every day and how much kids should love being around their coaches and not worrying about their ice time. That's a perfect spot. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, though, we're going to talk about how we do that. How do coaches, how do hockey associations, how do organizations make it so what you just described is the experience rather than the previous part of the experience you described? We'll do that with Mike Kennedy when we come back. Hold on with us. 
You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just before the break, Mike, you were saying that our goal, if we're going to be involved in hockey, especially with kids hockey, is to make them love the game, love coming to the rink, love being around, love their coach, love all that stuff. How do we do that then? Well, you know, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. um, But I, I do think that if we have a little look deeper into what can some of the variables that we can make kids like the game a bit more is it comes down to one thing for me is I, I want them to play. And the word play is a overused word, but what that means in practice is I want to compete. I want to play against my team. And if we can design our practices so that everywhere, whatever we're doing on the ice, we're kind of having a competition, whether it be a little small area game or a one-on-one or two-on-two or outnumbered, everything is in a competition mode, then I think practice becomes super fun. And the skill of a coach is to kind of set up these competitions and set it up so that the better players play against the better players and the weaker players play against each other. So everyone has a right amount of time to get better and play against each other. And, uh, you know, I'd like to see every coach look at practice and see how we can make it more like a game every time. And when we do that, I think the kids love playing games. I think you're 100% right, and I think that when kids want to play hockey or soccer or basketball or anything else, I think we're fooling ourselves as adults if we somehow pretend that they, they aren't competing. Of course they're competing. Yeah. It may, they may, as you yeah. say, they may be on different levels, but of course they're competing to some level or another. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, that's the skill of a coach is to organize these uh, competitions and practice and you know, the last line of my book, I kind of just said, if a coach could just grasp one little concept from this entire book, is to try to change the word hockey drills into hockey situations. And when you put a situation in front of them where they have to solve a bit of a problem, rather than, you know, skate around the ice, skating with a, a pattern that the coach wants, uh, we put them in a situation and you can create unlimited amounts of these situations. And when you do that, the game has some meaning, some impact. You're creating something that's similar to a game for them to solve a problem, and I think it's a lot more fun. And from what I've seen, the kids that uh, play in these types of practices absolutely love it. I love the idea, and it makes all kinds of sense, Mike. I mean, it really does. Here's my issue with it, and it's not my issue, I don't think. Uh, I've been a coach before. You are a coach. If you want to coach now, you have to go and take your Hockey Canada certification. And part of that certification is they give you a, you sit through courses and they give you a big giant binder and everything that apparently they want you to do is run drills. It's actually the antithesis of what you're talking about, which makes so much sense. So how do you, how do you change people's minds to say, no, no, this is a way that can work just as well? Yeah, well, that's huge. And I just actually had a long meeting with Tom Rennie, which he's now the CEO of Hockey Canada. And, you know, Canada's a little bit rested on their laurels for the last, you know, 30 years and beyond that even. And so they're, they're slowly adapting to the small area games. They've changed the ice for the, you know, younger programs and being cross, more cross ice and, you know, becoming playing in limited space with limited time. These are all things that enhance the brain and how to solve different situations out on the ice. We got all this. I got all this on the outdoor rink. So there was tons of kids getting around on only one puck, and you had to solve how to try to get that puck, how to get open for a pass. But now we've kind of gone through such a structured system with all these drills, and I think we're going to finally, finally see a migration back to the game is a good teacher itself. You don't need to be instructing every single item of it. And uh, I'm hoping that Hockey Canada is you know, willing to listen a little bit more and 
you know, come up with a new plan. I, I have thought, when I last coached, I said to myself at the end that if I ever did it again, one of the things I regret is I would take the first 15 minutes of every practice and just throw pucks on the ice and say, just skate around and shoot and do whatever. You'll figure out probably more doing that than with me running drills. Yeah, and, and like I said, you can shoot and handle the puck, and you can do that at the end of practice or before. But what kids really like to do, though, you got to remember, is they like to compete. And whether it be a tag outside, when you're playing tag, one's running away from you, one's trying to catch you, you're trying to use your moves. It's very similar to hockey. I mean, we got to create these small games all over the ice where uh, the kids can have a really fun time, and practice becomes the most enjoyable part of the week, even more so than games. Would this not be expensive, though? Because it would involve, I would think, the retraining or reimagining of pretty much every coach that we have in this country, or a lot of them, anyway. Scott, this is not expensive at all. All you have to do is buy Make Hockey Great Again, and you're off to the races. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and that's available at every bookstore near you for the low price of whatever it is. But, no, but, I mean, the idea, and maybe expensive... I don't know if expensive is the right word. I think there might be some expense, maybe not much, but it would require a significant shifting, though, of the ideal and of the of the thinking of a lot of coaches. It is. It is it's a little bit different, and that's why uh, you know, the title of my book is A Paradigm Shift. We can't continue to do things that I did uh, in 1980 when I was being taught. we got to start looking at it and go, okay, you know, some of those things still work, but where can we move this towards? And, you know, when I was putting this book together, I looked to soccer a lot, and I was studying how soccer became, um, you know, more science-driven, and of course, these players around the world are trying to develop their own stars and putting them through their own academies, and they, they spend significant money in trying to figure out what's the best way to move forward with these athletes, and I think hockey hasn't done that. We have this draft, you know, all the levels, to be at the CHL and the NHL, where they put the onus on everyone else to develop these kids. And I think if we just had a little longer look at what we could do, if the Toronto Maple Leafs had no draft and had to create their own players from Toronto, I'm going to tell you that a lot of the stuff that I'm doing would be part of their program. The book is called Make Hockey Great Again, Hockey for the 21st Century, A Paradigm Shift. It's by Michael Kennedy, Mike Kennedy. Uh, I know it's on Amazon.ca. I'm sure you can find it elsewhere. Go online, and again, you'll find the book. Mike, I really appreciate you taking the time talking about it today. Yeah, the other thing, Scott, I just wanted to add at the end, which uh, was my, probably my proudest moment of this book, was I wrote all 66,000 words myself. A hockey player no wrote editor. a book? Yeah. Wow. No editor, nobody else coming along to say, hey, this is how it's done. Just Mike and a lot of YouTube videos and his wife kind of helping through the grammar part. It's uh, it's an excellent job. And listen, I really, as I say, I appreciate you taking time to do this today. Thanks. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Uh, Mike Kennedy, Make Hockey Great Again, Hockey for the 21st Century. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm going to bring Will into the conversation here. Will is in tonight. He's on the other side of the glass. Story from California that is very disturbing. Not in a, not in a way like last night we were talking about a woman's head turning her brains turning to mush because of amoeba that got into her Ugh. brain. That was disgusting. Yeah. This is just one of those ones that. I do not have a capacity. I have a, I have a, what is it when when you're tight spaces, claustrophobia, but not claustrophobia. I can be in a small space where I get a little panicky is when I'm compressed in a small space, if I can't move. So it's not just being in a dark, small room. I can live with that. It's when I'm 
pinned and I can't go anywhere, that would cause me to panic. Well, that's what this story is about. In California, authorities had to rescue an attempted burglar. Did you hear this story? I saw a picture. It's not a good picture. There was a guy who decided that he was going to break into a Chinese food restaurant for whatever, to steal whatever it was that he had intended to steal. I mean, chicken balls. Maybe. But not only was this guy dumb because you would think you wouldn't think a Chinese food restaurant would be the number one target for a burglary because I mean honestly you maybe get a little bit of cash but it's not you're not breaking into a bank vault you're not breaking into a jewelry store you're not breaking into a computer place even That's the first problem the second problem is the store's been closed for 2 months it's been shuttered no one actually is in there there's nothing to steal, but apparently, as we've said many times on this show, criminals, not necessarily members of Mensa, had not really planned out this grand art larceny of his really well. So he sees, hey, Chinese food restaurant, I can break in. But as is the case with so many criminals who don't think through things properly, doesn't try and break in the back door doesn't throw a brick through a window and go that way. Although, by the way, I'm not actually giving suggestions on how to break in. I'm assuming these are things the average person would have figured out without my aid here. You're just wondering why Why did he skip over these plans? These are the obvious. Mm-hmm. Maybe even if you really want to pull a Shawshank Redemption move and spend a few <laughs> days chipping away at the cement cinder block masonry around and climb through a hole in the wall that you make something like that well maybe he was i think i know where this is going maybe he was thinking some shawshank well yeah he kind of was but in an in an an opposite and disgusting way this guy came up with the brilliant plan that he was going to go in through the grease vent (laughs) so this is above the cooking area and it is literally the vent above where you would be deep frying stuff. So grease that is splattering and is going up into the vent. It is exactly as described. And here's the thing. When the folks moved out of the Chinese food restaurant, because I guess it went belly up, of all the things that they were thinking they had to do before shutting the doors, cleaning the grease vent was not high on their list because this is disgusting. This is, it looks like an oil well. It, I mean, which really is going to throw me off Chinese food for a while, but this, it looks like an oil well that he has gone. And this guy decides, I'm going to slide down. Well, guess what? <laughs> he doesn't fit. So for two days, this guy who is now slathered in grease is stuck in the grease vent of this Chinese food restaurant until they can finally extricate him. The, the the authorities have to come. Alameda County Sheriff's Office and Alameda County Fire Department responded to the scene and had to dismantle the entire vent to get this guy out. 29-year-old guy taken to hospital for evaluation. And I'm guessing, is it Dove? What's the, what's the commercial we see where they clean the ducks <laughs> yes, from the oil yeah, spill? Yeah. So they probably had some sort of green, soap. Greenpeace activist rubbing this guy down to get the <laughs> grease off him because he looked like one of those ducks that they would eventually remove... Re- return to the waters. Uh, The statement from the Alameda County Sheriff's spokesman, first off, we can confirm this man was not Santa Claus and did not have legal authority to be here. Wow. Uh, They don't know what charge he's going to face. What do you, what do you charge someone with when they've tried to slide down a grease vent and gotten stuck? I guess 
break and enter. I, 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 I think suppose vandal. Who knows what? Bring him on on Ellen or something so everyone can laugh about what he did. I think that's enough punishment. The worst thing they should have done to him, honestly, is just after they checked him at the hospital, sent him home in his existing state. <laughs> just slathered head to toe, tip to toe in grease. It's and it like a thick thick layer he would have spent the next three weeks just trying to clean himself up and imagine standing in your bathtub just slipping and sliding and trying to i don't know what why criminals do the stuff they do i really don't but this one this is one of those ones nobody died nobody was hurt seems to me to be a perfect resolution for this guy just suffering through piles of grease that is all over his body don't break into restaurants don't break in anywhere and especially check if you're going to don't go in through greasy areas the Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.